I wonder if you have ever considered your inheritance. I'm talking about your inheritance in, in this world. Probably not much. Many of us don't tend to think that direction because it seems a bit morbid, ill-advised to think about those things that we might acquire. But I do have to admit that a few years ago, me and my older brother Randy, we were talking about our inheritance. And uh, one of the things that we will inherit uh, once my dad and mom are gone are, are hundreds of oil wells that nobody knows where they are and uh, why dad ever bought them to begin with. And uh, we, were, we were bemoaning this. Some of you think, man, is this like a, a Jed Clampett, Beverly Hillbillies thing? You know, no, it is not. Uh, because if you followed the oil and gas industry, uh, most of the time those things are more of a liability than a profitability for you and your family. And so uh, we were just there kind of bemoaning, oh my goodness, we don't know where any of this is. Dad has it all in his brain. It's not on paper. And I, I was very gracious, Randy. I said, I'll take the grandfather clock and the armoire that mom collected, and you can have all the oil wells. You can take care of all of that and deal with that mess. Um, now he works for the Oklahoma State Corporation Commission, and uh, he cannot even have oil wells in Oklahoma, and so it does fall to me and my siblings. But uh, today we're going to talk about inheritance. Paul wants us to consider our inheritance, not in this world, but our inheritance in Christ. And so if you would follow along, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 are our main text today, but we're going to get a running start at it. So we're going to start in chapter 3 and verse 23, some of that that we covered last week. So Galatians 3, 23 is where we will begin. And the Apostle Paul writes, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law and imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, remember that word, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. So he brings this, this argument to a conclusion, but it spills into chapter 4. Notice verse 1. I mean, Paul says, that the heir, that is the one who would inherit, as long as he is a child, he is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians, there's that word again, and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we ask now your gracious, kind blessing on our time together as we consider your word. May it be an encouragement to us. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path as we consider your nature and what that has to do with us as your children. We pray to you, Father, and we ask you, Spirit, that has been given to us to help us to understand and apply these truths. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move into chapter 4, Paul begins with an illustration. He presents to us a child, a, a minor as we would call them, who is heir to all of his father's possessions, but being a minor, those fathers, his father's possessions are just out of reach for him because he's not old enough yet. And so Paul makes the point in those opening verses that as far as the inheritance goes, even though he owns all those things, this, this child, though the heir to these things, is no different than a slave that would be a part of that inheritance. This minor is under the care, Paul says, of guardians and managers until that time comes, that date comes, when those possessions will be given from the father to him. In the Roman world, that date was typically the age of 14. But that still came with certain uh, restrictions. There were trustees that were often surrounding that estate that had to help and make those decisions. But a guardian would be placed into that situation, a manager over that child to care for them, to make sure that all of the, the needs were being met, to help instruct them and train them. And oftentimes, that guardian, that, that, that manager was a slave. And so in some of those instances, just for sake of the illustration that will unfold, the slave was in a better position than the heir in many cases. So in verse 3, Paul makes his application. Illustrations given 1 and 2, verse 3, he makes his application to the Galatians, really to any reader, that's us who are reading it today, and he writes that when we were children, when we were minors, we were enslaved, he says, very interesting statement here, to the elementary principles of the world. So in the illustration, we're the child, we're the minor, who is no different than a slave. In fact, here he says we are enslaved, we were enslaved to those elementary principles of the world. Now the big question, and some of you may be saying, well what does the elementary principles of the world mean? Is that like reading, writing, and arithmetic that we're supposed to learn? And if you're asking that question, it's a really good question. And many people 
stumble over that question. We don't exactly know what Paul means by it. Some suggest that the elementary principles of the world is some reference to the demonic powers that are controlling the world. Others take it from a more cultural reference to some of the pagan astrology and things that they were practicing during this particular day. Others view it as the aspects of human religion, those elemental or foundational aspects of human religion, which are what? Works. How do, I, how do I work my way to God? How do I perform these particular tasks? Now, that's the one I lean towards. And I want to tell you why I lean towards it is because if you go over to Colossians, one of Paul's other letters, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deceptions according to the traditions of men, and according to elementary principles of the world. It seems in Colossians, Paul is lining up these two ideas, the traditions of men, these law-abiding things that the Judaizers are teaching you, and the elementary principles of the world. That's why I move that direction. Paul has in mind two areas that we were enslaved. First, we're enslaved to sin. We're born slaves to sin. My kids had no choice in being a sinner because they were born from a sinner and another sinner. It's original sin that's been passed from Adam all the way through all of creation to everyone who has lived. We are born in a slavery to sin. If you want to look more at that, look at Romans chapter 6, start in verse 15. Paul speaks of this idea of slavery to sin. And because we're enslaved to sin, it also leads to an enslavement within the confines of the law. We're now enslaved to trying to earn our way out, trying to work our way out of this problem that we find ourselves in. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, slavery is our natural state. And that is the reality. We are born into slavery. But thanks be to God that the story does not end with verse 3. It doesn't end with our slavery. There's a verse 4. Our position, our, our stature, our standing changed when the fullness of time had come. Because when the fullness of time had come, what does it say? God sent forth His Son into the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't send Jesus on a whim. He didn't send Jesus as a last-ditch effort to say, oh, well, now I guess you've got to go down there and fix this mess that's been made. No, this was the fullness of time. This was planned by our Father. This rescue mission, this redemption, this restoration, this salvation. It was something that he had planned and began to execute in the fullness of time. He sent him according to the divine plan to redeem mankind. Look, look over with me. We're in Galatians. If you go over just one book to Ephesians chapter 1. should just be a couple pages in your Bible or a couple little swipes on your phone, whatever you're using. Ephesians chapter 1. This is a beautiful passage, starting in verse 3. It captures so much of what we're talking about today that I thought, I, I, we're just going to go ahead and read the whole thing. But it says, Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. People ask the question, well, why did he save me? According to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace which He has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan. Notice verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in the fullness of time it was a plan notice verse 11 though in him we have obtained an inheritance we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the, to the praise of his glory in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. Notice what he says next. When that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ah. Oh. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Paul goes on to write this. He says, He was born of a woman. Now, I think initially we may look at that and our minds go to the significance of the virgin birth and that particular doctrinal truth that He was born of a virgin. But really, the statement here is a statement regarding the full humanity of Jesus. That, that he was born of a woman, that, that he humbly made himself in the likeness of man. He had to be fully God in order to uh, be a sacrifice of infinite worth that would supply redemption and salvation for all. But he had to be fully man in order that he may represent man, us, this group of losers who's gathered here today, Together, we needed a winner to represent us. Jesus was that winner. Not only that, but he was born, it says, under the law in Galatians 4. It's a statement regarding the burden that Jesus bore in his life. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus was tempted and tried in every way like us, yet he did not sin was watching something this weekend with a few others and just was reminded that Adam, when he was presented with the temptation to, to sin, to disregard God's commands, he and Eve immediately chose to disobey and disregard. But do you remember what happened following the baptism of Jesus? He went into the wilderness and what happened? That same serpent, that same Deceiver, that same tempter came to Jesus and tried to get him to fail as Adam had failed. Did he fail? Praise God, he did not. 
He bore the weight of the law. Jesus lived the life of obedience to the law that you and I could never live. He was born under it, and he did so to redeem those who were under the law. The verb redeem here is the same that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, meaning that we, we are freed, we are liberated because of what Jesus did. Jesus substituted himself so that we might be redeemed. Jesus said, I will take your sin and your failure upon me and I will take the punishment and I will give you my righteous life. I will give you a life where the law was lived in obedience time and time again. Jesus became a curse for us on the cross so that he might redeem us. I hope, it's hard, I know, week in and week out, we have six days between the times we meet, but I hope as we're working through this that you're beginning to see the layers that Paul is placing. Why does he keep coming back to the idea of promise? Why does he keep coming back to the idea of redemption? Why does he bring Abraham into the conversation? Curse, blessing. He's layering these things together so that we might rejoice in the salvation that God's provided for us. One more metaphor that we want to introduce today that really was introduced last week. Jesus does this, and this is the final portion there, Galatians chapter 4. So he does this so that we might receive adoption. Adoption as sons. This means that we who were not a part of God's family were now invited to be a part. We're invited to have a seat at the table. Adoption like redemption, justification, it's another beautiful metaphor that we have of what the gospel accomplishes in our lives. To understand God sending his son and what that means. We have to travel to the ancient slave market and see ourselves there in the slave market. And someone steps up and says, I'll, I'll pay the price. I'll redeem that slave. And then we're whisked away from the slave market into the house of the richest person <laughs> in the village, in the country, in the world. And he says, have a seat at my table. You're no longer a slave. You're now my child. And everything that I have, you have. What a glorious salvation. What a, what a glorious string of verses and statements Paul puts together for us. But we're not quite done because according to Paul, the evidence of our sonship is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. It's another argument that was already made. Paul already laid the groundwork for this. But once again, we benefit from him repeating himself. He says, because you are sons, because you're now my children, God has sent the spirit of his son, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and he's crying, Abba, Father. It's the evidence that we're his children. First of all, I want to point out to you, this is... This is one of those verses where we find this beautiful Trinitarian statement. If you look at it again, we, we believe God is 
one but in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And here we see those three persons mentioned in the confines of one verse. God sent the Spirit of the Son. All three persons mentioned. Next, we have to consider that it is the Spirit who confirms, authenticates, ratifies our sonship. That's what Scripture teaches us. The Spirit is the fulfillment not only of countless Old Testament prophecies where God said, I will pour my Spirit out upon you. Do you understand in the Old Testament, they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit like we have in the New Testament after the cross of Christ. There were moments where the Spirit came and would work through people like Samson and individuals, but, but they didn't know the, the, the wonder that we experience in the presence of Christ every moment of every day in our lives. Those promises throughout the Old Testament, prophecies spoken by Jesus himself, even that night in the upper room before his crucifixion, what did he promise? I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send an advocate. I'm going to send a teacher. I'm sending someone. And then before his ascension, uh, he said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. What did they do? They went back and they waited. <laughs> They waited until the Spirit came upon them. And just a moment ago, we read in Ephesians 1, those last couple verses, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. You know what that means? It means He's the down payment. He's the down payment that the Father makes and says, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to see this through to the end. And just so you know that, I'm going to give you my spirit 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's yours. As a reminder that the best is yet to come. There's more coming. In one sense, the Holy Spirit is our new guardian. He, he's the one who is given to us until we now come of age transitioning from this life to the next. But the Spirit isn't some silent, backseat-sitting partner in our lives. According to these verses, the Spirit calls out or cries out, Abba, Father. To add a little more context that I want to quote to you from Romans 8, Paul writes this. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The word Abba, it's an Aramaic word. Uh, it, it, it's a child's word. It, it means daddy. It means Papa. Some of you are still in that glorious stage where your kids are still Dada. My kids call me Papa, but in an ironic and sarcastic way. <laughs> but some of you are still in that stage where they're saying Dada. Oh man, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. This, this is the word Jesus used in the garden when he said Abba, Father. 
If there's another way, let this cup pass from me. In the deepest despair of his human life, Jesus cries out to Papa, to Daddy. Why does he do that? Why does, why does Paul do it? Well, they do it to remind us and communicate really a couple of truths that, that we're children. And children need help. We're children, we're, we're helpless, we're foolish. And we need a father to help guide us through this life. My uh, family has been watching through one of the devotional things on Right Now Media. Again, if that's something you haven't checked out, I would encourage you to do that. But we've been watching through Psalm 23, Matt Chandler's teaching on that. And we had a fun conversation, you know, why? Why are we equated to sheep? And, and sheep are dumb. They are one of the most helpless creatures that you find on the planet. They get themselves into trouble all the time. And so I told our kids, hey, you're dumb. We're all dumb. We're just dumb sheep. And we need a shepherd. We're just kids who need a father. And because we have the spirit inside of us now, we're crying out, Abba, Father. Let's turn that around, though, because the other truth is this. Not only are we helpless kids, but, but we have a father who desperately loves us. Who has done everything he can to save us. To show grace, to show mercy time and time again. And he invites us at any point to cry out to him. In our times of need, in the times when life seems overwhelming, in the times when the temptation to sin is so great, he says, come to the throne of grace. He is a good father. In the end, Paul concludes with a beautiful verse. Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. No longer a slave to what? To sin? To the law? and its demands and the anxiety that comes with it. We're free from the curse. We're no longer slave to our own selfishness. Our need for me, me, me. In Christ, we're freed from that. We have a new master. And, and I would encourage you again, go to Romans 6 and read Romans 6 because Paul goes on to say, you're free from the slavery of sin and now you're a slave to Christ. And so those same members and the same time and effort you used to put into being a slave to sin, now put that effort into being a slave to Christ, a son to him. Instead of being a slave, you're now a son you know, that signifies an intimate relationship. A relationship that a dad can have with a son. It signifies a relationship that should 
encourage confidence, boldness. It's my dad. It's my dad. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and everybody knew my dad. I had a confidence about my life because I was, I was a Matthews. They knew of the kindness of my dad. They knew of his work ethic. They knew of his, his honesty. And I was raised in that environment with a boldness and a confidence in that small town. Not only that, but we have an eternal inheritance. Not some stupid armoire that me and my brother are going to go to fist and cuffs over at some point in life. No, it's an eternal inheritance. All because of Jesus. All because of Him. I want to take a moment and just consider a couple of implications with you, though. First, I want to consider adoption. I want you to seriously think about this question. What difference does it make for us to realize that we've been adopted into God's family? How does that affect the way you think? How does that affect the way you live? How does that affect the way you interact with other people? I'm a child of God. I'm a part of His family. Now, this concept is, is easier for some to understand because some of you have either adopted or you've been adopted and you have an insight into that that some of us don't have. Some of you, not because of anything you did, you were accepted into a family. You were embraced. You were given a new name. As I mentioned earlier, adoption is such a glorious picture of the gospel of Christ. And I'm so thankful for those followers of Jesus and those who are just simply image bearers of God who, who engage in foster care and adoption because it, it really does picture the character of our God. His love and concern for those who others just simply don't want. The Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, we find a beautiful story of adoption, in a sense. It's in the midst of the saga that is David's life, but in 2 Samuel 9, we read about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the, the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. But he was also the, the grandson of Saul, the former king who had tried to take David's life time and time again. Mephibosheth was crippled from childhood. But David invited him to have a seat at the table. I want to read to you. David said this to Mephibosheth. He said, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What a beautiful picture. We're Mephibosheth. We're cripples. We can't even get to the table on our own. He has to carry us to the table. He has to do all the work, and he brings us, and he says, you're here forever. You're part of my family forever. 
He willingly, he lovingly does it. So in adoption, we take a seat at the Father's table even though we don't belong there. And I want you to take comfort in these words. I thought this was just a, a brilliant observation by a gentleman named Burke. He says, God's family comprises solely of adopted sons and daughters. Here are no natural born sons or daughters in this divine household. That's exactly why it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. The foot at the cross is level. We're all in need of this adoption. It's also what makes this such a beautiful thing. Because in this, we're a part of a family. And it's just a slice, it's a sliver of what is intended to be for all of eternity. And in this, we get to live out those principles of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would love to go down that rabbit trail. I would love to talk more about all of the implications of, of this in our adoption. But I just want to say this. Just enjoy this. Just enjoy the blessing of a, a church family, of being a part of God's family as brothers and sisters in Him. But I also want to say this. Ever since the fall of man, sin has infiltrated into every area of life and even into families. And families have not always been what our Heavenly Father intended for them to be. And many of you in this room grew up in homes where people who were supposed to protect you and love you, they maybe abused you. They may have abandoned. Family doesn't leave a good taste in your mouth. You may hear the word father and you may cringe a little bit because you didn't have a good father. To this point, one author writes this. He says, it can be difficult coming to such a background, coming from such a background, to understand what it means for God to be your father. And he encourages this just very practically. You need to remind yourself daily as you meditate on God's word that God is very different from your father. You have to soak in the truth of God's love and ask the spirit to reveal the nature of your true heavenly father to you. You have to be able to understand the nature of our Heavenly Father. I'm gonna, I want to help us do that a little bit this morning. And so I want to look at a few different passages together as we consider the nature of our Father. Let's start in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. verse 29. They're reminiscing. Yahweh is reminiscing with Moses through Moses to Israel. And he says this, Then I said to you, do not 
be in dread or afraid of them. Speaking of the, the fortified cities and the many people, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. All the way that you went up, you came to this place. We were just reminiscing last night, this came to mind, when Judson was really small, he would, when he was tired, whether it was Walmart or Silver Dollar City, he would say, hold to me, Mom, hold to me. Uh, and so we were teasing him about his, his language there. But as a father carries his son, Yahweh says, I'll carry you. I'll carry you through the wilderness. I'll fight for you. That's the nature of our Heavenly Father. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit is a master planner. Because I picked Psalm 147 for Faith to read this morning. And as she was reading it, I was immediately reminded that these verses that came to my mind last night to add in are taken from Psalm 147. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on your body. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, Yet your heavenly Father, He feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon's glory was not arrayed like one of these, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Our Heavenly Father will give us the things that we need. Go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Please, Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or, or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then who are evil, sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Ah, he's so much better. He's so much better of a father than I am. He's so much better of a father than, than I had and I have a great dad. 1 John 3 says this, and, and I'll just quote this one for you. 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love has been bestowed on us that we have been called the children of God. All the love He has for us. Another implication as we think about being adopted is that we are now flee, free from slavery to sin. What does that look like? What does it look like to live like a son or a daughter of God? As a son or daughter, you've been gifted with the power, with, with the power of Christ. As it says in the text today, His, His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is given to you so that you're no longer a slave to sin. You can say no. You can turn away. Rather, you're made a son. So live like a son. Live like a daughter of the Most High. Live in that freedom that's been given to us. We're going to have more to say about that in future sermons, and so I'll leave it there very simply. But as we close, one more powerful implication for this text, and it's this. It's the gift of prayer. We can cry out to God. We can cry out to our Father. And that's a topic that I'm going to leave for next Sunday. Um, a couple of our men are going to help instruct and teach in that direction just what does it mean that we have access to the Father. This gift of prayer that has been given to us. Today, let us rejoice in the loving Father who has adopted us into his family. Would you bow with me? As you take a moment and pray, are you a part of the family? Have you put your faith in the work of Christ? As, as we read in multiple places today, it's faith in Jesus that gives us opportunity to be a part of God's family. It's faith in Jesus that creates this adoption. It's faith in Jesus that equips us with the Holy Spirit. Have you put your faith in the work of Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb. If you haven't today, cry out to Him in faith, believing. If you have questions about that, please don't leave here today without having those questions answered. Come find me. Find someone else 
that you can ask those questions of. But for those of us who are here today and we say, I've put my faith and trust in Christ. I am a, a child of God. Don't take that for granted. Pray that the Spirit would help you to understand all the implications of what that means in your life. To be a child, a son, a daughter of the Father. Father, we thank you for a seat at the table. The table we don't belong at. Now because you are kind and you are merciful, you are good and gracious, King. You sent forth your Son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law so that we might be adopted as your sons and daughters. And we give you praise for that today. Personally, God, I pray that you would that you would help me to realize the, the value of being your child. The value in this life, the value in the life to come. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see that and live as a result of this glorious truth. So God, we thank you for that. We pray your blessing on this day. Help us to go forth and live as sons and daughters. And we pray this in the name of our blessed Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.